0: For those of you who listened to the very, very end of my ep last week, you were expecting this week to be all about the city of London. Well, due to unforeseen circumstances with which I won't bore you, instead this week in our last episode of the year, we will be answering all your questions about bidders with two who have been in the bidders biz for almost 10 years. I've had many Eureka moments in the over 200 episodes of Lush Life I've done, but never so many in one episode, all to do with bitters. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Who should be here to answer all my questions about bitters? And there were many but my friend and former Lush Lifer, Lauren Mote, and her partner in business and life, chef Jonathan Chauvensek, co-founders of Bittered Sling Bitters, Canada's award-winning cocktail bitters brand. To hear all about Lauren's background, check out my two apps dedicated to her career. Jonathan has had more than 20 years experience creating local, sustainable fare, for some of Canada's most celebrated establishments. Plus, he's contributed to many magazines, been on the telly, and was the chef and host of CBC TV's groundbreaking documentary, Village on a Diet, which was watched by more than a million people coast to coast. With these two at the helm, let's see how many Eureka moments you have. Uh, I am thrilled to have you both on the show. Lauren, you've been here twice. And Jonathan, this is your first time. Now, everyone can learn about Lauren. We have two episodes dedicated to everything that's Lauren Moat. Now, we're here specifically because it's my how to drink series on how to drink, really how to use bitters. Because they're something that kind of scare me. I'm not sure really what they are and what they do in a cocktail. I think maybe a lot of home bartenders think that. So let's get to exploring. But first, we have Jonathan with us. And so why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got here sitting next to Miss Lauren Moat?
1: This is always the most amazing part of any interview because I wouldn't be talking to you without Lauren in my life. And we met in 2010. First of all, my background is cooking. I'm a chef. I started cooking in 1992, which is longer than some of your listeners may Actually, be a lot. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> we so, don't talk about age on this podcast.
1: I, I, it's I, not, not ages. Sometimes we'll bring it up. So uh, we met in, in 2010 and started dating. And our dates were always focused on flavors. And it started with wine. We do wine tastings and get all cork dorky. And then we started doing spirits and spirits tasting. And for me, that was a real awakening because I was uh, a vodka soda kind of guy. And then... Well, you did like Oban, though. I loved, yes, I loved Scotch. Very, very good Scotch whiskey. But I really didn't know a lot about the cocktail and spirits world until I met Lauren. And at the bar that she was running in Vancouver, it was all bitters and house-made tinctures, vermouths, infusions. And she was really pioneering that whole side of mixology back in 2010.
0: Lauren, remind me, where were you exactly at this time? Exactly at this time? (laughs) So when you met him. I was getting a Facebook
2: request from him back during the days (laughs) when you had to explain why, which LinkedIn used to do up until only a couple of years ago. We had to say, well, how do you know this person? You have to prompt a message to add this person as a friend. Otherwise, they don't have to add you. And he said, hi, Lauren. I'm Chef Jonathan. I work in the same industry in the same city as you in Vancouver, Canada. And I think that we should be connected because we have 800 mutual friends, but we've never met.
1: Did I say my yeah. name is Chef Jonathan?
2: No, <laughs> <laughs> made that up. It's calling no.
0: it me. Yeah, it's
2: a yeah. good story.
0: We're going with it. We're going with. Better
1: in my chef whites, wearing an apron,
0: wearing his little his little toque. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. that. Was your picture right? Your Facebook picture yeah. has a toque, right? <laughs> I meant, I meant in your career, were you already, were you already a sommelier? Yeah. You were already so yeah. you were working at a bar, you were already into cocktails.
2: Well, yeah, because, you know, even prior to to being of legal age to serve alcohol, I was still working in restaurants and Mm -hmm. working in fast food restaurants, dressing burgers, singing songs at Licks in Toronto. And that was since 1996. And then in 2000, in Canada, you're legally allowed to serve alcohol at 18. So I started serving in 2000 when I was 18. And then the following year, I started to serve the drinks and drink the drinks. When I was nineteen, but I continued to—I don't know—I was going in an educational direction that is kind of reflected today in a, in a different way, which we we'll could talk about later. But I was in university studying peace and conflict studies and in international relations, but working in bars and restaurants at the same time. And eventually, I made the switch, and that working in hospitality became the priority, and then the education I was doing became secondary. And then when I when I switched fully in two thousand and five and and you know started studying wine i started my sommelier courses in toronto working with amazing sommeliers at los bistro and they have one of the biggest wine cellars in canada and um i moved to vancouver in 2007 and worked for lumiere which also was probably one of the most well-known high-end restaurants in canada it was owned by rob feeney tv celebrity chef so uh I worked with lots of really great front of house people and I just continued my studies. But cocktails weren't a thing at that point. We had mandatory cocktail programs in restaurants in Vancouver, but we didn't make that the focus. The focus was almost entirely wine and aperitifs and what we would do interesting digestives to pair with desserts and petticoat. So I, I studied wine. I was writing wine programs. And then spirits started to come in. Of course, we had to have an amazing single malt and whiskey selection from all over the world. And then from there, cocktails just seemed to find their way in as the popularity in the West Coast of the U.S. in Seattle, L.A., San Francisco, Portland started to rise. Then it indeed started to rise in Vancouver. And so I sort of went with with that flow. And so three years later, in 2010, when I met Jonathan, it was already the third bar program, fourth bar program that I was writing in Vancouver, where I was writing both wine. cocktails and spirits listings Mm -hmm. needless to say i was smitten
0: yes so you got this now it's out in the open this facebook request and you obviously answered yes yes i will meet this person had you heard of him as a chef and knew his work
2: yes because i knew him through a couple of other people i knew who he was
0: the 800 other facebook friends that you had in common well that's the thing
2: i mean when you (laughs) When you add someone on Facebook back then, I mean, it wasn't haphazardly. I mean, you you were intentionally adding someone on Facebook. And so, you know, I yes, I saw his name. What he added me as a friend, I started looking at his pictures like total stalker, just okay, next, 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 okay. And he was, he was wearing chef blacks. He wasn't wearing chef whites, but he, his profile yeah. picture for a long time was like a really intense and beautiful bouffant hairstyle with like shaved sides where he was like holding a knife while he was cutting something. These are some of the first interactions I had with Jonathan's virtual personality. And uh, he was doing the same thing on his side, looking at my pictures, not realizing that I was a uh, six foot one.
1: And I'm five foot seven. And
2: he's five foot seven. <laughs> so that's so when we
1: met for the first time, I was like, well, hi, Lord. i was <laughs> Jonathan.
0: Well, personally, my brother also is five foot seven, and his wife is six foot. So it all happens in many, many families. Match. Is it? It yeah. Is yeah. Perfect, it is yeah, perfect. It is perfect. Uh, so why why were you interested in meeting this Ms. Lauren Moat on Facebook? What was it about I was
1: her? A single man, and she was a beautiful. All right,
0: woman. so it was romantic.
1: Well, actually, there there is there's more to the story. I had actually read quite a few of the blog posts that she was writing. She had a blog called Poob Media at the time and she was writing about food and beverage but a lot of it was food and flavor and you know it was like 2010 so El Boule and Alenia were the big restaurants that everybody was into what modernist cuisine was all about and so that was sort of a hook where I was reading about she was doing extractions of citrus and spice flavors through a handheld nitrous siphon which was really cool and writing about the tasting notes and that led to, oh, she runs a bar program, and I had a friend in, in town, and they said, we should go check out Lauren's bar program, and A, meet her, uh, two, give her my phone number, and <laughs> uh, also be social and have a nice night out with a friend.
0: And so what were you drinking then, or where? and where were you drinking? What types are you, you know, chefs, don't they, oh, I guess it's, it's bartenders end with a beer, but you know, what do chefs end the night with?
1: I have always been a big fan of eating and drinking everything. So if you put something in front of me and it's intriguing and it's got a story, I'm going to taste it. And if I like it, I'm going to consume all of it. So <laughs> so to answer that question, whatever is delicious. So if it's a really tasty local beer, uh, I'm down with that. If it's great wine, you know, we're from Vancouver, which has incredible wine producers in the Okanagan Valley. And also incredible spirits producers. Back in 2010, there was only a handful. Now there's hundreds. And we were really lucky to be at the forefront of that cocktail renaissance, which coincided with the craft beer movement and craft spirits movement. And in Canada, the Okanagan Valley, British Columbia, Vancouver, media really embraced it. Culture really embraced it. So the other thing that was happening at the same time was the big farm to table locavore 100 mile diet slow food movement and we were that was what we were into and so that's what we talked about when we went out for drinks we talked about food we talked about restaurants we talked about flavors so when we started dating it was just a natural progression of you know we're on dates we're t- we're going to good restaurants we're going to good bars to see our friends We're talking about all this, you know, great, delicious gastronomy. And then when we go home, we would do experiments. And one of the experiments we started doing was, let's make some bitters. And Lauren had, when I met her, she probably had 50 or 60 bitters randomly around the bar in jars, just macerating all different flavors. And so it was a really great exercise for me to understand what what it was she was doing from uh, alchemy. Perspective, and also from a creative perspective, because a lot of it, you know, when you're you're talking about cocktails and 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 everything, a lot of it is about the magic of what happens when you combine these ingredients together. You know, it's like people singing together; these magical overtones and and uh, choruses fill the room. It's the same with flavors on your palate, and and so we would spend evenings just experimenting with flavors. And then that's what sort of led us into developing Bittersling as a retail brand.
0: All right, let's let's go back. Um, as I said at the beginning, I know that bitters exist. I have your, I have some bitters of yours here. I have some other brands which we won't point out over there. But number one, I'm not really sure what they are. I know they're a combination of things that are made into a bitter, and I'm not really sure how to use them. So for someone who who doesn't really know what they are or how to use them. You know, can you tell me a little maybe history or, you know, exactly why they came about and why they're one of the, you know, three ingredients that actually makes a cocktail, a historical classic cocktail?
2: For sure. So it's a, I mean, it's a long story, but I will condense it down. But essentially, since people started distilling alcohol or distilling fermentable starch into alcohol. Uh, The alcohol has always been infused. So whether it was used with infusions of flowers and, and different like beautiful aromatic ingredients and maybe made it into perfumes and soaps, or potentially it had other very good for you ingredients or, you know, local items found on hillsides that were excellent at at solving whatever ailment you had and and served as a remedy uh, would be infused into alcohol. Alcohol is actually the most magical solvent. Water is a great solvent, but alcohol is a magical solvent because it suspends whatever you add to it in time and space for an almost indefinite shelf life. And so bitters and the way that we use them today was not really how they were intended in the beginning, but I think the evolution over the last several centuries, maybe the last 400, 300 years, has really been uh, the evolution of how we drink. So from uh, wines to distilled spirits, or the blend of wines and distilled spirits together, or other ingredients and teas, it also is part of, you know, the globalization of different ingredients from spices to teas to coffee to sugar and different things. So I think as, as humans have evolved to utilize different things, and so to have the items that they have always had in their pantries or always had in their kitchens or bought at the pharmacy or what have you, they too have also evolved. And now if we fast forward to, say, the early 1800s, I mean, the most famous example of bitters, which was created by a German doctor called Johann Siegert, and he moved to Venezuela to be the Surgeon General of Bolivar's army, and it was there that he created Agastura bitters that we know it today. That would be the prototype back then that was created in 1824. And that was essentially an infusion of different ingredients that were found locally, infused into local alcohol. So one can assume it might have been sugarcane or grape distillate at that time. And from there, it was added to every ration. It was used as medicine. It was used as liquid courage. It was used to whet the appetite for like an aperitif almost. So that, as our earliest example, and also one of the very few examples that survived through Prohibition and two world wars and different things, it's amazing that we have that as our primary example. But of course, they would not be the last. We've seen several brands come out since then, but I think the, ones, the reason why we started making bitters is because bitters, in a lot of ways, is similar to wine or local cooking or any other sort of... Uh, cottage industry that might exist in a small location where it becomes an expression of the local access ingredients and and techniques that you have. And Bittered Sling for us was the way of creating a line of bitters that are made in the traditional sense. So in the way that Agassar or Peychaud would have made their bitters in the 1800s, used in the same way that you would use them in classic cocktails like a Manhattan and Old Fashioned Sour, etc., but we were primarily focused on ingredients that told the story of canada and the story of canada if you know any of our listeners are from canada or have visited canada it's very hard to distill canadian cuisine down to we eat beaver tails poutine and bannock you know like it's it's more than that and this is part of the reason why why Jonathan, like he's looking at me with love eyes, it's part of the reason why Jonathan and I started our relationship both academically and also romantically is because we think about things in the same way. And he's always said, and I agree with him on this, that the expression of Canadian cuisine and flavor is through the amalgamation of incredible cultures that have come here and, and settled and brought their food and traditions with them. And so for us, we're able to take the idea of bittered sling and create incredible recipes with botanicals, roots, spices, barks, and any other ingredients that we that we enjoy and infuse them with great alcohol, uh, work with really great companies and great suppliers for all of our ingredients. But each one of the bottles will have a different expression of something that was important to us in our careers or what we've seen, where we've traveled, what we've brought back to Canada. La Marrakesh is our Moroccan spiced lemon bitters that is inspired by our trips to Morocco. But the flavors of walking through, you know, the kasbah and sticking your hands into the spices and, you know, smelling the lemons and drinking the tea, the mint tea, and just like that, that is what that encapsulates in that bottle. But it's strong enough that you can use it with whiskey, rum, etc. So if you wanted to get adventurous and put, you know, the Marrakesh bitters in a Bobby Burns, you know, which is Benedictine, sweet Vermouth, and Scotch whiskey, it would be extraordinary. And the bitters would be strong enough to stand up to it while bringing out the best of everything else in that drink. So I guess to round this all out, the, the story of bitters is long and fascinating and amazing. And the best bartenders use bitters. It's no secret. And it's not rocket science. It's using it as the salt and pepper of the cocktail world. So when you add, and Jonathan can obviously speak more to this than I can, but just very loosely, if you add you know, salt, pepper, and appropriate seasoning to a specific dish, it doesn't make it salty, but it brings out the flavor of everything that's in that dish. And so we use bitters behind the bar in the same way. So to bring that Manhattan to life with two parts whiskey, one part vermouth, they become two separate ingredients, but bitters is the foil that brings them together and makes the Manhattan. And, it, and it's very easy to use bitters as well. I think you just have to think about it from that perspective.
0: Just a little bit, going back a little, when they were creating bitters, you're saying that it's the, these things that are distilled into alcohol. Do you know why those didn't become separate spirits themselves and they ended up being bitters?
2: Well, some of the spirits were really terrible. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily want to drink some of the things that came off the still. And it's actually almost like the reason of the creation of gin in a lot of ways. It's like adding botanicals to mask the flavor of really terrible alcohol. But eventually the alcohol gets better. The botanicals get better. And we develop a taste for these amazing botanicals. And now all of a sudden we have this spirit that we can't live without. And it was the same It it, it would have been the same back then. It was always wine, you know, alcohol, straight alcohol was added to wine to help preserve it in long travel. It happened to be sitting in barrels during travel. All of a sudden we have claret and port that's been aged in wood and that becomes the same thing that we drink today, only better quality. So, And I
0: guess with the bitters, maybe drinking a whole glass of it might be horrible, but adding a teeny little tiny bit to a drink, a few dashes, just was the magic.
2: Well, actually, but there were two different ways to look at bitters, and that that is what what led us to invest in categorizing potable bitters and also non-potable bitters. I say us as like the industry. Hmm. Non-potable bitters are the ones that are administered by dashes and drops like bittered sling.
1: Because of their intensity.
2: Yes, because of their intensity. And then the potable bitters like the Fairnet, the Jager, the uh Kari, you know, different vermouths or amari. You know, you you name it. Sue's like Amar Pecan, which is just right here. So I mean, if if people really had the taste for it, and it was actually quite a significant European taste for potable bitters that people would drink the Milano Torino. They would drink things on ice. You know, it's it's very European. But in the U.S., where you know American cocktail culture, which is like the North American cocktail culture, it would have started actually with non-potable bitters because that's how they were making drinks. American-style drinks were led with whiskey or gin or other spirits with vermouths, liqueurs, modifiers, and bitters. So the two worlds sort of existed separately, and now we're lucky that they're available together.
0: Oh my God, I just had a eureka moment. You just gave me a I never even put the two together, really. The amari, the bitters, bitters. I don't know why. You know, In my brain, they were oranges and apples or cats and dogs I didn't even think of them as the same thing it's amazing now when you were dating in the early days and you were enjoying all of these things together Jonathan were your eyes just like my eyes were uh, open to oh my god I never even thought about this whole world of bitters and a whole nother thing to create and eat and enjoy or drink or add to something was he, were you just blown away?
1: Totally. Yeah. In the moment, completely. And and my friend uh, and I, we left and he said, that was absolutely incredible because he's actually uh, the guy I was eating with when we met Lauren. He's my mentor. Uh, his name's Pete Zambri. He owns a restaurant in Victoria and he's 10 years older than me. And both of us were really tasting things for the first time. Like Lauren, she had made like a black walnut. Uh, Vermouth from uh, local wine and black walnuts from the vineyard uh, that made the wine, and and uh, and then layered it with complex spices and mango bitters and peach and pepper bitters, and it was like getting hit with a jolt of electricity every time she brought a drink over, and then she'd also bring the the jar of macerated uh, botanicals so we could look at it, and uh, it, it was really eye opening. What was very cool. Very quickly was Lauren was invited to go to a lot of cocktail conferences and festivals. And so I went along and one of the first ones was Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans, which at the time was the biggest cocktail festival in the world. And then that's the gateway to everything and being able to taste the world's great spirits all in one place in such a electric, incredible gastronomic city. So we're eating, we're drinking, and really ex- being explorers. Like for me, I was in my early 30s. And so it was a really good time to have the experience of all of the cooking and traveling I had done to be able to really approach spirits from a, a technical and taste aspect as opposed to a party aspect. And so we went to Louisville, Kentucky, and did, you know, bourbon. Uh, distillery visits and and met all of these you know really incredible people the faces behind the 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 stills Hmm. you know people that their family's been making spirits for generations or they've held the same job since they were 18 and now they're in their in their 60s and they're getting ready to pass their master distiller hat over to their son or daughter who's apprenticing with them and and just you know, seeing the cultural aspect of spirits too was really incredible. And then the third aspect of that, which I think is the best aspect, is a community. You meet bartenders and chefs and and people who just love flavors, food, and beverage from all over the world. And everybody it, they're all on the, they're all on the same page that Lauren and I were when we first met, talking about flavors, really analyzing what it is we're 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 drinking and talking about in much the same way people discuss art and, and movies and literature. And these people are coming from all over the world and they're doctors and they're uh, lawyers and they've got uh, MBAs in business and they're all drawn to the spirits business. And a lot of them quit their jobs to become bartenders or to become distillers or to make these artisan products and i was seeing the same thing in the kitchen as well because in the like 1999-2000 i was working at at some really great places in canada and we would always have sort of middle-aged uh i'm i've been doing this career which i've got a incredibly high education to do i'm going to jettison that and take a job as a line cook for minimum wage and peel peas for you for the summer because i love cooking and also because they had a Whack of cash in the bank and they could do that kind of thing. but there was this whole it's actually I'm gonna wax nostalgic about it now because those <laughs> days are long gone, like so long gone. it's like that whole industry is on is on fire now, nobody can find staff. so it's it's a real shift in, in twenty years uh, of the industry being completely spun around. So when we started dating in 2010 it was smack in the middle of that whole incredible gastronomic enlightenment. And that led to the advent of our ubiquitous uh, food culture in magazines, television, movies. It, it's just our, our zeitgeist is full of food and drink now in a way that it never has been before in history. And it's coinciding coinciding at this time where you know we can't open our restaurants, we can't open ours, and we can't find any staff when we can't open them. So it's, it's this really unique time. That we're in right
0: now and the longing to get back to that definitely well I was wondering when you when she invited you into her den of bitters did that change your the way that you wanted to run back to the your kitchen and make food
1: no I, I was already cooking with bitters at that time and it's interesting because I' had been to a, a a food conference and watched uh it was this great San Francisco chef doesn't matter who he is but You know, he had in his seasoning tray, he had his salt, pepper, espalette, spice blends, and he had a bottle of Angostura bitters. And he was using it to season. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to check that out. And it becomes this uh, extra tool when you're cooking because essentially a bottle of bitters is a very well thought out, constructed and balanced spice rack, which points in a specific direction depending on the flavor of the bitters. So when you use that and add that when you're cooking, especially when you're using it in uh, seafood dishes, egg dishes like uh, an egg foam, uh, saucy kind of thing, or in pastry, making cakes, chocolates, you know the the sweet realm that spice profile really plays well. And in fact, if you're if you were to taste vanilla extract, it's very bitter. It's mm-hmm. it's an incredibly bitter. Alcohol extract of vanilla bean. And it gives that signature backing note to all things that are butter, flour, sugar based. And without it, the butter, flour, sugar doesn't really taste like much. And, and when you add, but when you add vanilla, you're not tasting the vanilla bean. It's the backing note behind everything else that gives it a uh, character and, and uh, a, a base, which was all the flavors play off each other. And so that's how bitters work in a cocktail glass. And and to a certain degree, bitters can work like that as a seasoning element uh, in food as well. When I met Lauren, uh, I was already using bitters as, as sort of a tool, but not to the degree that two years later, we were really working with it. Well, <laughs> so the next thing we did, we got Bittered Sling going and then we quit our jobs and started a catering company a boutique called pop-up. Called Culinary Arts. And we started doing plant-focused local catering. And a pop-up restaurant. And we did a pop-up restaurant twice a week at a partner liquor store that had a 36-person long table in the middle of the store and a little kitchenette.
2: And we did that for like five years.
1: Yeah. And so we would work with different spirits brands and bring in local bartenders and also bartenders from... Uh, different parts of the world and we would do a cocktail menu that was based around the theme of uh, the cuisine and the theme of the cuisine would be based around the origin of the spirit that we were using or the portfolio that we were using and so we called that bitters like bistro and we did that for years and years and that was like the the real sort of learning of well how can we really use bitters in cuisine as a, an effective tool and not just as a marketing book of, oh, just add bitters to this and we'll sell more bitters. But no, how can bitters actually affect the flavor that enhances it in a great way? And I'll say this, not all bitters belong in food, but select bitters flavors are extraordinary in different aspects of cooking. So we, we really did uh, explore that to its fullest potential.
0: And when you decided to create Bittered Sling, was it difficult for you both to agree on what to start with as in in flavors and what your first few bitter styles were going to be or first few bittered flavors, I guess, were going to be?
2: I would say that because I already came in with a background of making bitters, it was easy for me to steer the ship a little bit. However, I steered the ship to the point where I would gift wrap everything that I had done previously. And I said, Jonathan, this is what I've been doing. And then he said, this is how we can improve it. This is how we can make it better. Uh, But I think our partnership from the beginning was always incredibly cooperative because so much of what we were passionate about was always flavors. It was a joy to sit down and take an ingredient of the day, let's call it banana peel. We would stick a piece of banana peel in hot water. We would eat the banana peel on its own. We would cold brew the banana peel. We would put it in alcohol. And then we would write tasting notes for the entire thing. How do you describe what a banana peel tastes like to somebody who's not going to put a banana peel in their mouth? And we did that with orange peels, grapefruit peels, lemon peels, wild celery, plums, cherries, Peaches. We did it with every sort of main ingredient that we wanted to highlight because it made sense as part of the classic bitters world. But then we also did that with all of the ingredients that played a role that would be the spice backing, they would be the barks, they would be the spices, they would be the volatile ingredients like fresh herbs or other, you know, fruits or other fresh ingredients. And so we had this amazing Rolodex or food and flavor directory of how we would describe what these flavors were. And then it became the task of the two of us putting it together in a recipe build that gave the bartenders what they needed in finished cocktails, gave us what we needed in terms of, we're very proud of how delicious this flavor is and how powerful it is. But then also for a certain extent, it needed to be balanced also to a chef's palate. So I think the two of us, we divided and conquered. We had four that we started with, and then we went up to almost like twenty-two flavors, <laughs> and then we paired it back you now to ten. But that's over, you know, almost twelve years um, of doing this. But did you have something to add? I think
1: yeah. One of our one of our most popular flavors is called Moon Dog Latin Aromatic Bitters, and it it goes all the way back to one of those first few dates where we we said, okay, what are we going to do today? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to construct a bitters recipe using a spice profile that describes the other's personality in flavor. And so I ended up writing this recipe that described Lauren's personality, and that recipe ended up being uh, Mood Dog Latin Aromatic Bitters. And it's it's incredible. It is hot. Uh,
0: I was going to say, you're going to have to know someone really well to do that. Otherwise, you could be uh, upsetting them what he
2: said actually because when he actually presented the bitters back and we tasted it and i said these are insane they're they're like going in so many different directions but all a very familiar direction they're really eccentric
0: oh i love <laughs> it i love it
2: yeah and the one for him I created was denman which we which we discontinued no i'm just gonna we uh, we <laughs> actually <laughs>
1: changed and it yes yeah. was, it yeah. wasn't uh relevant jonathan's
2: anymore. multiple personalities <laughs> he uh Yeah, the the Denman Bitters was created sort of with with his profile in mind because everything that he did when he was teaching me techniques or he uh, would would cook for me, and I also cook a lot as well. Obviously, he's professional. But everything he did had an air of how do we slide Asian flavors in here? And I don't mean like Southeast Asian or lime leaves or things like that, but I mean like the, the spices that really make up the bulk of like what Chinese cuisine could be in different provinces. And so he always had star anise. He always had different peppers and different and chilies and uh, just different things that he would bring into life and use it in a way that I'd never experienced before. And of course, he spent time in China. So that was, that was really cool. So Denman felt very Chinese in its nature and its flavor profile as like an origin where a lot of those spices came from. And so we actually evolved that flavor to become Kensington and Kensington is our big aromatic bitters as well. And and Kensington and Moondog now sit side by each in the global flavors lineup. So I feel like we we both managed to get there.
1: I think that's one of the things that makes bitters like stand out in, you know, the vast ocean of bitters brands that are out there. It's like, do you know a bartender? Okay. You know, somebody that makes bitters, like everybody makes bitters and a lot of them are great, but you know, really speak to people in in a way that's unique because of the way it works in the glass and the way it works with the chosen spirits, the the modifiers, the sweeteners. It's really designed to to balance and enhance. We make them bone dry. We don't add any sugar. They're really intense. So no matter which one you're using, which flavor, they're all going to speak at the same volume. And that's really helpful for the user when they're tasting and putting together a cocktail. They know that bitter thing is going to give them this impact in this balance and this uh, spice profile to to their drink when they add it. And and so I think that is a unique evolution of our palettes as a career bartender with at the time, you know, a decade of experience and then a chef with coming into two decades of experience you know that's a that's collectively so so much tasting so much really contemplating flavors and how they interact how they intersect how they're gonna impact on the palate and like i said at the time you know we were just like geeking out with harold mcgee books and spending way too much money on spanish cookbooks and then translating them and this is our thing so now we now we've got this legacy of, of flavors because the, the bitters themselves have been locked since 2014. There was, I guess, two years where we were really sort of tweaking what some of the flavors were really, really going to stand out. And with uh, the citrus flavors in particular, the first round of citrus we had, the feedback we got from our, our customers and our friends was, you know, the voice really isn't as loud as, say, the moondog or the plum and root beer. It's a little softer. And that's when we went back and re- refined all of the recipes so that they're all the same level, the same voice. Mm-hmm. and they're all in very different directions in terms of where the spices and the bitter barks and roots yeah. take you on on that flavor journey. But that you know it's been a great evolution, and now you know we've got this incredible legacy of really our life's work as as professionals
0: and obviously you acted as your own brand ambassadors when you first created them you know it's almost nine year, eight years ago um, did you feel that people were open to trying new bidders you know when you went into a bar to introduce them or were people like uh, it's okay we got our bidders and we know what to do with them and we're not ready to have anything new
2: well well, actually we, we created Bittered Sling, like the prototypes of what would become Bittered Sling was actually 2008, 2009. We opened our first company in 2011, which again is the, the catering and events company, which still is the owner of the trademarks for Bittered Sling. So it owns Bittered Sling. If, if we want to talk about our first bottles commercially available, they would have been 2012 which means we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary in February of 2022, which is amazing. But at the time when we developed and launched Bittered Sling, it's because there was a commercial, huge commercial opportunity to to not just jump into a void where there were no bidders, but to actually create the opportunity and the demand for bidders. Because in Canada at the time, there was no education. There was very little demand unless you were a bartender in the know but it was also far before the surge of bitters that erupted. And so classic cocktail culture was blooming at the same time. Uh, Top bartenders in the world and, you know, London, New York, and then everywhere in between were still really open and interested in how they can jump into, you know, supporting really great bartender and chef-owned businesses, local businesses, which was pretty cool. And so actually at that time it was more than, it, it was a joy and it was open with, with you know, big welcoming arms. Every time we walked into a bar and restaurant, uh, we would sit down with you know, the bar manager, all the bartenders would come walking over, the servers would come walking over, the chefs would come out of the kitchen. And then all of a sudden, you know, our 30-minute tasting with our distributor whoever we were working with turned into a 90-minute hangout. And then we'd stay for dinner and drinks and then leave some bottles behind. And, and a lot of those early uh, relationships like that are still some of our biggest clients that have been with us for, you know, almost 10 years. So I think because we established ourselves and the credibility of of our product and, you know, the flavor, the quality, the commitment to, to the suppliers that we work with and how we embrace and develop a uh, community as best we can using our bidders as sort of the jumping off point for that has really given us a spot in the in the global universe of bidders which is really great and it's not to suggest that we can sit back now and say ah yes enjoy because it's it's a different world every year things are changing and we are changing every year and we want to make sure that we support every generation of bartender bring more people into the industry and continue to support those who are still in the industry and they know that they can rely on us for a great product we're very hands-on you know when they when they chat bittered sling they are chatting to jonathan and lauren regardless of the other noise they will get us or they'll get one of our amazing bread ambassadors that have been with us since the beginning so it's um yeah it's been it's been an amazing ride if we had started this business in 2016 not sure where we get to but i think we we started at the right time and helped to really embrace and put I guess Canadian bartenders on the map, first and foremost, has has been really important.
0: So let's talk about the home bartender as opposed to the bartender in a bar. Um, As I said, I'm slightly scared of bitters. Now, of course, I'm not because now I know there's potable and non-potable and I've got the whole bitter thing. But, you know, when someone buys a bottle of spirit and they want to make a drink and they want to try a different bitter You know, to commit to pouring 60 mils or two ounces and maybe throwing it away if they've got it wrong or don't like the taste. Is there a way that a home bartender could play with bitters with, I guess, kind of a cheating way? You know, so they're not.
1: No, no, no. I'll follow a recipe. For God's sake, I, I can't tell people enough that they're starting cooking or starting making drinks or whatever. It's like, don't experiment, follow a recipe and think about why the things that are in the recipe that work are, are in there, are in there together.
2: Like I would never make anything as a baked good without looking at a recipe. And Lord knows I have 100% been cocky enough to stand in the kitchen and say, I don't need a recipe to make these cookies. And then they come out tasting like cardboard. So yes. Love that. And you know, we've done all the work. Already for that. You know, our website is incredibly rich with recipes from, you know, the the beginner bartender at home, just as you mentioned. They haven't even identified themselves as a bartender, but they've got a mason jar, they've got a a glass, they they may have old ice cube trays, and they've got this beautiful bottle of spirit that they want to do something with. Um, so we've got uh videos, we've got recipes, we've got photos, we have place recipes that they don't know how to make simple syrup, and a lot of people don't. You learn how to do that so i think that there's it's it's not just a one-stop shop for we'll teach you how to use bitters it's we will teach you how to make really simple drinks with a proper evolution that already exists on our website of how you can go from the to, to maybe use a phrase from tess's bar here in in amsterdam flying dutchman you have to crawl before you walk before you run before you fly And that's exactly, you know, what our website does. It it gives, you know, a a level of understanding on how to mix drinks with bitters uh, at any level.
0: Thank God you've taken all of that, you know, (laughs) the burden off my shoulders. Follow a recipe. Do not experiment. I love that. That's their top tip for the home bartender. (laughs) (laughs) Go to their website and follow the darn recipe.
2: Mm -hmm. Bar tools do not matter. Recipe for, <laughs> but again, you know, as we
1: as we mentioned earlier, we've never been in a time in history where more information has been available for making delicious things, and and that's uh, multicultural cuisine, that's multi spirit cocktails. But you can be turned on to a, a particular uh, style of gin. You can do some research. You can find twenty five recipes from incredible bartenders on Instagram or on online and then when it calls for you know citrus bitters that's where with bittered sling you know you could come in and we've got three variations of citrus bitters and that's where the experimentation and the innovation can come in using the different bitters to modify the foundational recipe in a, in a different way and you're going to with different bitters you're going to get a different end product because the botanicals and the bitters are going to influence the structure and the the final balance and taste and how it hits your palate of that cocktail so depending on the bitters that you use and this is throughout all brands it's going to enhance different parts of the cocktail and so depending on what what you want to land lightest to heaviest what you want to have the most impact whether it's the bottom notes in the vermouth that you've chosen to make your negroni with you know you can use a more bitter bitters to really set those out because they're going to neutralize the bitterness of the campari and the bitter barks and the vermouth and you're going to have more of those aromatic citrus notes and herbal notes stand out which doesn't mean you're really changing it it's like those subtle nuances that you experience when you taste well-crafted food or or drink
0: well i feel much much better about using bitters now i kind of can't wait to go back here and, and get some out and, and add them because I've, I have really have been slightly not scared obviously but like oh I don't know I know that I like the bourbon this way what's it going to do so
1: what's your big cocktail
0: oh well I like bourbon and I like it with a little sugar in it but I've never really committed to the bitters I know that's crazy I do order an old fashioned and the way it comes is fabulous but when I'm home I'm like, eh.
2: You're seventy-five percent of the way there though. I mean, honestly, all all you need and actually this is a great segue because I was gonna say that the thing that uh I think home bartenders kind of screw up on because they're scared is they don't add enough bitters. And so they feel like they're not doing enough. So as an example, when you know in a cookie or a cake recipe you have to add like a teaspoon of vanilla extract, that doesn't seem to ward anybody's feelings off they're like yes that is the right amount proportionately for sure but then <laughs> they add bitters to a cocktail they're like one drop it's like how is that going to do anything and it proportionately to to make a drink like an old-fashioned if you've got 60 mils of uh of bourbon you've got 10 to 15 mils of sugar syrup you know rich or or standard simple what whatever your choice is and then you've got two dashes of bitters because proportionately that's what you need to bring that volume of product together. So it transforms into an old fashioned. Otherwise it's just straight bourbon with a slight hint of something.
1: And one dash is one mil. So one full dash out of a pipette is one milliliter.
2: And I think for home bartenders, because home bartenders are learning about the lingo the bartenders use professionally at the same time they're trying to figure out how to use home techniques and tools to make drinks they they might think i don't understand what a dash is because there's nobody here like i'm not a bartender so i don't know what that what that means everyone everyone's got measuring spoons you know and one mil two mils so if you think about it you know one teaspoon is five mils Uh we want anywhere between you know, a quarter to a half teaspoon of bitters in a standard size drink. That is two dashes. So, I mean, if we could give one tip to the home bartender, you know, other than following the recipe, uh, is is you, you do need to be fearless and just really take the step because you're not going to screw it up because you bought bitters that tasted good to begin with. So the, the worst thing that happens is that you add too much bitters, but it's not it's not going to be terrible. It's still going to be a delicious drink. It just might be a little bit stronger in the flavor profile of the bitters than you had hoped. But using two dashes is important. So measure it in the spoons and remember that, you know, it's two mils for two dashes or one mil for one dash and just measure it in your half teaspoon measure and then you're
0: good. I don't think I've had this many eureka moments in any podcast ever, by the way. All right. I just can't wait to have that. Yay. Your job is done now. I always ask this question at the end. If you could be anywhere drinking anything right now, where would that be? Can I go first? Yes, go first.
1: I would like to be, um, and I'm going to be very specific about this because. Uh, I have a
2: lot of time to think about this.
1: <laughs> I would be in Ludenburg, Nova Scotia at <laughs> my mother's house. And uh, Lauren and all of her brothers would be there. My sister and her family would be there. My mom and dad would be there. We would have a big fire out back. We would all be having a delicious punch. I'd be roasting something. And we would all be hanging out for the first time in two years. And if I could transport myself anywhere right now, that's where... What
2: about Mood Dog? Will she be there?
1: Mood Dog would be there too. We also have a a beautiful little tech old lead Mood Dog. And she comes everywhere with us. Although she's a puppy right now. And so she doesn't go anywhere. So... (laughs)
0: I'm,
2: I was going to say that my my answer is actually the same. And the only edit to that is that last Christmas, we sent my mom a full decked out, beautiful copper plated bar kit, like with a, a three piece shaker with bar spoon jigger mixing glass like she had the whole deal. And we sent her the full set of bitters and we we did the same for Jonathan's parents as well. So what I would say is we would want the parentals to be together in the kitchen and we would do some sort of little class where they were actually learning how to make Drakes for the first time in two years as Mm -hmm. well. Because that's that's really cool. So, yeah, that's the only edit I would make to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yes. You know, when I started asking this question, we didn't have covid. And now, of course, almost 100 percent say I want to be with my family, having whatever. It doesn't matter. So I totally understand. I feel the same way. And I want to thank you so, so much. You've clarified so much about bitters for me. I can't wait to have not only our cocktail of the week that you send me, but also that old fashioned because I just got a bottle of bourbon sent to me in the mail. So I can't wait to open it. So thank you guys so much for being here. I really appreciate it. So lovely to see you again, Lauren, and to meet you for the first time, Jonathan.
1: Thanks for having us. This is a lot of fun.
2: And looking forward to having a proper drink with you in London <laughs> as soon as we can as soon as soon we can get back over there. But in the meantime, always a, a huge pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for all your ongoing support of what we do. Oh, of and, course. But you're and all the number of other amazing people you have on the show supporting <laughs> their business. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much. so much.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Thanks so much to Lauren and Jonathan for being on the last program of 2021. After one moment with them, who wouldn't want to revisit every cocktail recipe that includes bitters and make it again? First up is their Cocktail of the Week. We have the festive and appropriately named cocktail to end the year. The Cocktail of the Week is Times They Are a Change-In. You'll need... One and a half ounces or 45 mils of Tanqueray 10 Gin, one ounce or 30 mils of Rose Vermouth, a quarter of an ounce or 10 mils of Verju Cordial, which is made with equal parts of simple syrup to white verju. Oh, and simple syrup is equal parts water to white sugar. A quarter of an ounce or 10 mils of Campari. And of course, two dashes of bittered sling, orange, and juniper bitters. Add all of the ingredients to a mixing glass. Add ice and then stir. Then strain neat into a chilled cocktail glass. Then take an orange peel and press it lightly over the top of the cocktail to express the orange oils. And then wipe it around the glass. You'll find this recipe, more cocktail recipes with bitters in them, and all the cocktails of the week at LushLifemanual.com where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. Have a wonderful holiday, everyone, and see you in 2022. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next year, we'll be back in the city of London, heading out to Singapore and meeting some kittens. Until that time, bottoms up!